Radio. I just had this brainstorm for us. Can you guess what it is? No. Bowling. What do you say? Bowling? Huh? I don't think so, George. You get no rush from bowling. I'm thinking rock climbing. All right, rock climbing! Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 50. That's right, the big 5-0. A bit of a milestone, I'm pretty excited, and I like the sound of episode 50. This is Peter Horgan, and on this episode, I am joined by the one and only Chris Sharma. Before we get into the episode here, now that we are at 50 episodes, I want to extend a sincere thank you to everyone that spends their time listening to the show, whether you've been listening since the beginning or if you're just joining us now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have learned so much over the past four and a half years or so from talking to over 50 people now since some episodes have had more than one guest, but more importantly, I hope you all have learned so much as well. I've gotten several comments over the years, people citing a specific episode saying that they walked away with a specific nugget of information from that episode and have now applied it to their local climbing organization or to their own personal climbing pursuits. And it damn near brings a tear to my eye when I hear those kinds of things. So knowing that, we're just going to keep rolling here with this thing and hopefully put out at least 50 more episodes. I hope that's all right with you, because it's certainly all right with me. So thanks again so much. Greatly appreciate it. All right, let's get on with Chris here. Chris was recently in the States earlier this year, making a visit to Boulder to premiere the final episode of his show, The Climb. He got acquainted with some Access Fund staff while he was there, and he graciously agreed to come on the show. Chris has been connected to the Access Fund for many years now and is very impressed to see how far the organization has come since he was first acquainted with them when he started working with Prana way back when. And as you'll likely already know, Chris's roots are in Southern California, but he has now been a resident of Spain now for about 15 years. He's, of course, traveled all over the globe, immersing himself in different climbing communities and cultures, and he thinks that this is a very important part of being a well-rounded climber. So with this experience, he has a gold pulse on how climbing access and stewardship can vary between the U.S. and Spain. We get into some specific examples, and Chris shares some stories about what he has observed during his time in Spain. Chris is undoubtedly leaving an incredible legacy and continues to add to it with the creation of his gym brand, Sharma Climbing. He's super grateful to be in a position to help facilitate that experience for new and seasoned climbers now. And not to mention, he's just still out there getting after it and taking advantage of any opportunity, whether that's climbing or not, that comes his way. So big thanks to Chris again for, for taking the time to chat for this 50th episode of the Climbing Advocate Podcast. So let's get into it here. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Sharma. Before we get into the episode, I want to give thanks and show some love for the supporters and sponsors of the show. Black Diamond, Adidas Turex, Gnarly Nutrition, Mammut, Alpine Start Coffee, and Plugtone Audio. 
Thank you all for the continued support of the Climbing Advocate podcast and dedication to our climbing community. All right, sweet, right on. Well, it's all came together recently because you're recently in Boulder doing a screening for the final episode of The Climb, is my understanding. And you met some folks from the Access Fund and they asked if you were interested in coming on the show and you said you were psyched to do it. So so here we are. I'm, um, I'm really grateful for your time. And I knew I wanted to have like a special guest on for this 50th episode coming out here. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to chat today for a bit. Cool, yeah, well, I'm, I'm super psyched to, to be here with you. Um, yeah, it was cool. I met Chris Winter at the screening of the final episode of The Climb, and which was which was really cool to meet him and um, just kind of reconnect a little bit with the Access Fund. You know, after you know, you know, I've been living over here in Spain for a while, but you know, I've always had a a pretty strong connection with the Access Fund. So it was great to reconnect and meet you know the new director, and um, so super happy to support you know, the access fund in any way I can. So, um, happy to be here with you. Awesome. Appreciate it, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. How was your time in Boulder? When was the last time you were there and, uh, how was the turnout for the event? Sounds like it went really well. Yeah, it was, it was great to be back in Boulder. Um, you know, I have, I've spent time in Boulder, you know, throughout, I don't know, the last 25 years or something like that, or 30 years climbing. Um, I've never, you know, spent like tons and tons of time there, but obviously Boulder is such a, a hub for climbing on so many levels. So um, it's pretty amazing to, you know, kind of coming there from the outside and seeing a, a town that's so outdoor oriented, um, you know, just walking the streets and just seeing all the different um, shops from all the different you know companies, but then all the different foundations and institutes and stuff like that. So very, um, very futuristic, you know, in a way, you know, to kind of come to Boulder from, from Spain and see, you know, how far advanced, you know, uh, a lot of this stuff is. And, um, and it's very cool. It's very cool to, to come through Boulder. Um, and it was super special to show, you know, have this opportunity to share the final episode of The Climb with a live audience. You know, this has been a project of ours that we've been working on for several years. And, you know, when we launched it, you know, I've been over here in Spain. And so, um, you know, I've been a little bit isolated from some of the reaction. So it was cool to kind of share that moment with the live audience. And specifically in Boulder, there's just so much um, passion for climbing. Um, it was just really special for me to kind of get that um, positive feedback from a, like a core climbing community. You know, like that was, you know, I think we're, we bit off a lot with this you know, concept for the climb. And it was, you know, it is a challenge to, you know, make so many different, you know, groups happy, you know, when you're making such a big production. And for me, it's always important first and foremost to do something that, you know, my peers and contemporaries and, you know, you know, the climbing world will feel proud about. And so um, it was just cool to see that, that reception, that feedback in, in the crowd, at this last, at this screening, it seemed like everyone was, um, seemed like everyone enjoyed it and kind of felt proud of how our sport was represented, you know. And I think there's always ways that we could could do better, but um, you know, on that that level of play, you know, the platform of you know HBO Max to do something like this around climbing, I think uh, as a first run, like we, you know, we. 
we can be pretty proud of it. So yeah, uh, it was good. good to just share that with the community and um, yeah, be back in, in the U.S. in general. You know, for me, I'm I've been living in Spain for quite some time, um, but I also feel still feel a deep connection to you know my roots in the U.S. And so, just great to be back in in the U.S. You know, I spent uh, during the whole COVID period, about three years without coming to the U S which was really kind of like a record for me. You know, usually I'm coming back like three or four times or more a year. Wow. So it was just great to kind of get back into that groove of coming back to the U S and connecting with the, the climbing community. And then also seeing a lot of my own friends as well. And it was a bit too cold to go climbing, but it was great to be there. That was like what, December or something, I think. It was January, January 25th, so it was like okay. it was super snowy. Um, yeah, but but yeah, no, I'm always impressed with um, Colorado climbing in general, and just yeah, just how how far you know ahead in so many ways the the climbing community is in, in Boulder. It's really interesting to see. Yeah, interesting. Good perspective. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, just kind of your history with Colorado, because I've lived in the south central part of the state for quite some time now. And I started off in Fort Collins. That's where I got my start a little over 10 years ago. And and I know you, I think you got your name on a couple of boulders up uh, outside of outside of Fort Collins. So I was just curious what your history with Colorado looked like outside of Boulder, maybe. Have you gotten any other time anywhere well, else? Yeah, much? I mean, I think the you know the first time I took a climbing trip to Colorado was, must have been 1996 with Tommy Caldwell, and we went. Uh, we were kind of going on this rampage of you know sport climbs around the, the West, and we went through Rifle, and then I came to his house in um, Estes Park. Um, so that was definitely the first first taste of Colorado climbing. And yeah, like I like I mentioned before, you know. I've, I haven't spent like super large chunks of time there, but I've come through Boulder many times, you know, for different events. And then, you know, it's just kind of an inevitable uh, thing, I guess, as a climber, um, spend time in Boulder at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I, I just rewatched uh, the scene that Chuck Freiberger film from 2012, maybe. It's like mm-hmm. one of the first climbing films I've ever watched, and it was like blew my mind. And it's like that's the whole premise of the film, right? It was like these different scenes around the world, and Boulder's one of them. And you're featured in the end of the film. Um, I believe it was in in Spain at the end of the film. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a major hub that's probably on every climber's list. I, I think. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because I think wherever. I think that's one of the cool things about climbing, you know, when you travel, it does kind of like open your, your mind to, you know, all of these different places in the world. And, um, which is, is a super health, healthy perspective. You know, I think, um, whenever we get just super settled in our, in our place, whether, whether that's in Boulder or in Salt Lake city or in Yosemite or Catalonia, right? Like it tends to feel like the center of the universe. Um, mm-hmm. but then you go to another place and you realize that there's other centers of the universe right and so i think it's um i think it's good to to travel and that's such a a big part of i think kind of i think make creating a legacy as a climber actually is is traveling right like you have uh that's kind of one of the things that uh i think is really important if you're you know not that i've like really set out to like make a legacy or something like that but um 
I think that's just one of the things you have to do as a, as a climber is travel and sample these different areas. And that's, uh, and yeah, absolutely. Boulder is one of them. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now I like you brought up legacy is something I wanted to touch on just a little bit. And I feel like that's something that comes up and it starts to get pondered towards the end of someone's career. And I, I just, I don't know why, but like Kobe Bryant always comes to mind because towards the end of his career, he started figuring out that next thing he was transitioning to and reflecting on his career and how he can keep having an impact with basketball. And he created the, the, I think it was like the, he had us to go in like kind of league with of, of basketball teams and stuff. And, and then he started making little films and storytelling about basketball and just kind of transitioning to the end of that next thing. And I kind of see you doing the same, I'm not seeing you at the end of the career, your career by any means, but cause you're still out there doing your thing, of course, but just with your gym and, and the show and stuff, you're, you know, you're, you're looking at that next thing to keep leaving something behind for, for the next generation of, of climbers. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm I mean, it's not, it's never really like an intentional thing. You know, I've, um, I've had a lot of good fortune. I feel very privileged, you know, throughout my career to have, um, kind of, I guess, done a lot of firsts, you know, in climbing. I think climbing, you know, in the early nineties was very, it wasn't very developed. Right. And so there was a lot of low hanging fruit, um, so whether that's doing first ascents or, you know, cutting edge new routes or um, just kind of somehow, you know, you know, breaking down certain barriers or, you know, kind of being, a, um, you know, on the forefront of, of pushing climbing, but not just in climbing, but also like being one of the first, you know, real professional athletes, you know, professional climbers. Um, and then, you know, yeah, kind of, um, all of the different films that we've done were really kind of like the, at the beginning of, um, you know, films becoming part of, you know, climber storytelling. And then, um, you know, I just try to like embrace, you know, the, the opportunities that come my way, you know, um, I've never been very structured about my climbing or training or, or much anything in my life, you know, it just, a lot of it is pretty spontaneous and just comes from the place of wanting to, um, you know, realize my potential as a person. And, you know, it's like when a, a door opens up, you know, you can um, choose to walk through it or not. And I, I usually feel like unless you have a, a good reason not to, it, it's usually, you know, good to try new things and, and step out of your comfort zone. And so, um, so yeah, like all of these next steps, uh, whether it's, you know, establishing a, a gym brand or, you know, competition series or, or this TV show, um, it's really cool to just embrace these new experiences as part of my um, evolution as a climber, as a person, and then also as a way of, you know, somehow contributing to, to the world of climbing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Do you feel there was so much chatter about, you know, these big films that came out in the last five years or so, six years and the Olympics coming online and stuff? Do you do you feel like the, the climb, the show is kind of on par with those big feature films and the Olympics just exposing more people to the sport in a in a good way to just maybe get the get their interest going and, and their intrigue up to to, to try the thing out. Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, I mean, 
I don't know whether it's the the chicken or the egg situation, but it's like you know definitely um, climbing has reached like a critical mass where it now is in you know the psyche of the mainstream. Obviously, with films like the Donwell and Free Solo and the, you know the Olympics. I mean, those are all like you know you know very important moments in you know that process, and I think those are those have paved the way for uh competition series like the climb so yeah it's very cool to see that um that evolution and then you know get to continue to be part of that and and for me it was it was pretty unique because most of my career i've always been the 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 talent climbing right and in this situation i was kind of the, the mentor or something or you know i was i was wearing a lot of different hats i was also one of the producers um and so it was also like an opportunity to like learn new experiences and uh, learn, learn new things and learn, learn new skills. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, something that took me away from just my normal day to day of going rock climbing, which, uh, which was cool. Uh, at the same time, you know, we spent just the, the shooting of the, we spent about five months shooting. And so that was a, a big time commitment. And we had come from uh, two years of just this whole massive development with our climbing gyms here in Spain, COVID and everything. And so it was a, it was kind of a long haul for me. Like it was a couple of years where I really didn't have much time or enough time for me to dedicate as I would have liked to actually just going rock climbing. Mm-hmm. And so basically ever since the climb wrapped. That's what I've been doing. I've just been going rock climbing and Good. getting back to the basics. And <laughs> um, I mean, I've got other things to deal with on a day to day basis with with family and having you know some having children and stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, it's cool to um, to reflect. You know, this is my I started climbing in 1993, so this will be 30 years climbing, and a lot has changed uh, for myself and for climbing in general. But I have to say that it's pretty cool to still feel the the passion is just as strong. So um, pretty amazing, you know, climbing as a, as a life journey. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's just, uh, I just want to tip my hat to you a little bit. I think it's a very selfless act taking on opening gyms and, and the show. I mean, opening a gym is great. Like, Oh yeah. Like I've thought about doing it in my, in my community. Cause there's not a bit like a major one here. We just have like a small one at the university and, you know, come that what comes with that is being a business owner really at the end of the day. And that's just a lot of work that will take you away from what you truly, you know, really want to be doing out climbing for yourself perhaps. But yeah, I just want to, you know, it's a very uh, non-selfish yeah, thing no, to, to do that. It's so cool because, um, when I go to the gym and I see so many people in our facility that have started climbing there and, you know, yeah, know that, you know, I've facilitated, I've, you know, facilitated that experience for them and, and seeing how this, you know, climbing gym has become such a fundamental, you know, role in their life and their social world. And their you know, you know um, it's really cool to, to kind of facilitate that for others. Um, right. You know, when I was a kid, in, in Santa Cruz, um, it was life changing when Pacific Edge opened up, and it gave me a place to come and you know discover climbing and connect with other climbers. Right, 
and so I know what that's like and what that what that meant to me. So being able to offer that to to other people, it's it's very cool. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I think it's probably pretty safe to say that we all know your roots are in Southern California, Santa Cruz, but I don't think I've really heard too much about those very early days. And by early, I mean like very first time, very, you know, the first few times or even the first year or two of, your, of you getting into climbing. Like, so I asked this, I asked this of every guest of the show, like just to hear their story a little bit, like what were those first couple times like? And, and yeah, the who, what, when, where, and why of yeah. how I got yeah, we'll into it. I, I um I tried climbing a couple of times. So there was uh, a climbing gym called City Rock in Berkeley, and another one called um, uh, another one in nearby. I, f- I forget the name, Class Five or, or something like that. Um, and I tried it a couple of times with my my mom and taking me to a climbing gym because a friend of hers had recommended it for me. Uh, you know, I was twelve years old and um, I wasn't very gifted at other sports. I was very athletic, but I would, I'd never found like the activity that just clicked for me Not in sports or in, um, you know, academically either. Uh, and so when I found climbing, it really was like love at first sight. I mean, I really felt like I found something that I loved and that I was good at. And, um, and when, I found out that they were going to open a gym in my hometown in Santa Cruz. You know, I immediately went there and like, you know, I remember asking the guys for a job and ended up, uh, it ended up that became like my, my home. You know, I, I spent, I would climb like seven days and you know, seven days a week, basically. And I would ride my skateboard to the climbing gym after school and um, just basically dedicated all my time and time there. And I remember one thing that was interesting, you know, I went from a, a small private school that was up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It was fun. It was um, by it's called Mount Madonna School. It was from uh, founded by this yogi Baba Haridas, and so it was very kind of sheltered upbringing. And so I went. I was at this moment of transition in my life where I went from that school up until sixth grade, and then I tra- transferred to a public school. And it was kind of a brutal transition for me, you know, that coming to a big public school and the kids weren't very nice. It was kind of a hard time fitting in. And at the same time, I discovered climbing. And so it kind of, um, it was interesting and looking back on that because I feel like I kind of got that kind of social um, rejection or something like that. I was, it was just a challenging time growing up, I think for any 12 year old it is, but you know, really having the climbing gym to kind of take refuge in. And I met, you know, I met all these other people, a lot of them were older than me. Um, but it just became very clear. It was like, that's where I invested all my time. So instead of spending time socializing at school, it was like, get done with school, go straight to the climbing gym. And, um, and I just basically, um, dove in headfirst to that, that entire, that world. And, and so, yeah, it was pretty, pretty remarkable. I think looking back on it, you know, because I started when I was 12 and by the time I was 14, I was already competing nationally and I won the, the national championships, you know, for all, um, ages, right. It was an open category. So it was kind of a, that competition, in particular in San Francisco, it was in 1995, uh, Mission Cliffs, and 
that was really kind of like a paradigm shift in competition climbing in, in America because, um, you know, Tommy Caldwell, myself, Beth Rodden, Katie Brown, we came onto the scene, uh, also Dave Hume, and we were these teenagers competing with these adults. And like suddenly we like kind of took over at that point. And it was really, uh, really remarkable. And I think, um, yeah, it's just interesting, you know, moment in our sport for sure. But, but yeah, from that point, then just like going out climbing, you know, I think other really pivotal moments for me were, um, climbing in Waco tanks. Uh, probably that took my first trip there in 90, 96 or something like that. 95, 96. And, and that was really like eye opening, um, because Waco is so gymnastic and it was like, it just, uh, it suited my style so well. Um, and so, yeah, just, I think immediately though, I was, I was very much enamored with rock climbing and, uh, yeah. Great. I've heard a story. I want to confirm if it's true or not. Just getting back to the competition. You were, you were climbing once and your keys and wallet fell out of your pocket at one point. Is that a, is that a true story? I think so. Yeah. You know, I was, um, <laughs> I kind of took pride in, um, not giving a fuck, I guess. <laughs> uh, I think maybe I was a bit, I, I was a bit of a punk in that way because I think climbing came uh, at that period of my life. Yeah. I was, 15 and climbing came so easy to me that I was um, maybe a bit of a punk and, and uh, in that way, <laughs> but, um, but also it was, I think it was, I mean, to this day that there is something that to my style where my approach for climbing, which, you know, I still haven't really ever followed like a, a strict training regime, you know, my, 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 uh, approach is just to go climbing it's very spontaneous and and so it's i think some some ways uh, that that's the same my same style still to this day although i, take, I try to take my keys and wallet out uh, <laughs> light as possible well anyway yeah i just wanted to maybe pivot into the some advocacy stuff here and you know you've been in a position of being the face of the, of the sport for so long and i think by default You've bec you've become an advocate, or you've been an advocate or ambassador for the sport, and I think those words can be used a little interchangeably. And I think a lot of people that are in a position like yours, whether they openly express it or not, have a deep deep appreciation and respect for where and how we recreate and our advocates themselves. And I came across an old Access Fund video from like ten years ago, where it looks like you're at an event at Movement, maybe at the Denver location. Um, so you've had some connection involvement with the organization in the past and you said that up front, like, you know, you've been connected with the organization for a long time. And do you, do you know which video I'm talking about? Have you seen this? It's like a minute and a half long. It's, it's on YouTube. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we did, you know, a lot of work with, you know, with Prana, uh, my sponsor Prana, uh, we did a lot of work with the access fund, uh, throughout the years. And, you know, the founder of Prana, Beaver Theodosakis, um, he's, been on the board of the access fund for many years. I don't know if he's still on the board or not, but that was, that was one of the pillars of our, like, you know, athlete ambassadorship was, you know, these access fund activations, you know, so through, usually they were often at climbing gyms, uh, but, you know, you know, classic times, like, you know, at the Phoenix bouldering competition back in the day, um, 
that's really been kind of uh, the backbone of you know so much of you know um, of yeah my how I've uh, been a, a climbing ambassador, I guess, for these different brands, right? And it's it's cool. You know, I was thinking about it before getting on with you that uh, I also am friends, and, and I knew back in the day um, Armando Menocal, who was the founder, the original founder of the Access Fund. You know, I so I started shooting photos when I was a kid with Jim Thornburg, and he was housemates with Armando, and so um, it's just really interesting to look at, you know, how, you know, how intertwined, you know, things are through, you know, over the years. And I feel very grateful to have, uh, have been a part of that. And, and so, yeah, like, like I said earlier, it's great to have this opportunity to kind of reconnect with the access fund. And, um, it's really amazing to see how thing how far things have, um, evolved and, and how, how high level and professional the access fund has become. I'm really, I'm really impressed with, you know, you know, where things are at and really proud also of, you know, I think, I think access fund seeing what the access fund is doing makes any climber proud, you know, to be a climber. It, it's a really good representation, you know, of, of our community as, as a whole. So And, and then absolutely, like uh, you know, you know, moving on to like actual stewardship. I mean, I think it really is creating access fund has created the the blueprint for how to you know navigate all of these different you know complex situations. You know, whether it's private land or you know public land. You know, there's so many different ins and outs. Uh, you know, and of how to navigate these restrictions and how to. Um, you know, compromise and, and make both sides happy, you know, and, and all of these different scenarios. And so um, it's something that I do reflect on a lot now being here in Spain and seeing, seeing, you know, how, how much climbing has grown over the last 10 years. And I mean, I've always said that in Spain, they need some, something like the access fund. And it's, it's interesting to kind of compare the the setup in America versus Europe because or, or here in Spain anyways, because um I think the main climbing body is the Spanish Climbing Federation, which um would norm which would be the I don't know, the equivalent of the American Alpine Club or something like that, um in in the US. But a little bit, not quite the same thing, I guess. Um, a little bit more like a government political body, I guess. I think one of the challenges is that actual going rock climbing falls in the cracks between, you know, you have you might have these sanctioned events or competitions or, you know, this and that that are very official sounding things you know, this for the sport of climbing, but then going rock climbing is this very grip, big gray area, uh, you know, the user group and how it's being represented is, um, it needs a lot of work here in Spain. And so I've always thought that, you know, there needs to be an access fund here in Spain. And especially when you see, you know, one of the classic examples are, um, hunters 
and archaeologists. Like one, of, it seems like two. Those are two, and then like environmentalists, you know, uh, bird birds and etc. But um, all of these groups have high level representation, you know, on a on a political level, right? They have these, you know, they have this lobbying power. They're very organized. So mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, a group of hunters or an archaeologist, you know, the, the classic example is the Santalina cave in Catalonia where um, they have found some, you know, remnants of some Neanderthals that, you know, from a long time ago, but it was more like they found some petrified sheep dung or something in this cave. It wasn't like they actually found Neanderthal remains, but because it's a, a place of, geo, of archaeological interest, the archaeologists have a lot more say and a lot more power in that discussion than climbers mm-hmm. because climbers aren't as well organized over right. here. So, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting to kind of see what the Access Fund is doing. I feel like it's a great great example of what you know needs to be done in in Spain, at least in Spain. I don't, I don't know about other countries, but definitely in Spain. It's a it's kind of a critical moment because um, I think climbing was under the radar for a long time. Now that climbing is getting really popular, you're getting you are getting um, overuse issues, which come with like pros and cons. You know, there's one of the interesting things in Europe or here in Spain is you have all of these small villages out in these rural areas that are literally on the on the verge of extinction, you know, people have moved out of them, moved to the cities. There's no young people that live there anymore. And they're like, these villages are dying out and climbing. If you look at a place like Margalef, for example, climbing has given a, created an, an economy and, and create and like revived these, these small villages. And it's really interesting to see that. I think there's a huge opportunity as a, there's a, it's a win-win scenario, right. In a lot of ways, but Things just need to be more managed. Uh, I think. I mm-hmm. think it's a, it's a, it's a fine line, and because, you know, the nature or the the kind of the heritage of our sport is about the freedom and being out of outside of the the confines of society and and all of this stuff, and and so once you start going that direction of like, you know. Um, creating uh, policies and all this stuff, it start playing that game. You know, it's like, where is that going to lead us? But I think if we don't, we're going to see a lot of uh, climbing areas get closed over here in Spain as well. And, um, and so it's an interesting time with all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to take a guess that the issues or problems that we deal with here in the community in the States, I mean, are you ubiquitous, perhaps, you know, in, in, in Spain or France or, or somewhere in Europe, but the way that they get managed or solved might differ. And that be that could be because of bureaucratic reasons, like differing regulations or policy around land management or having support systems or resources like the Access Fund or local climbing organizations, like whatever it might be. It sounds like that might be lacking a little bit. And, and you bring up, uh, you know, interesting point that definitely happens here in these, in these, um, 
kind of extract, extractive towns that, that do that were historically coal mining and such, and maybe trying to pivot. They're trying to they're kind of dying away from like boom yeah. and bust cycles and stuff, and they have been for years. And now they're transitioning towards like a tourism based economy. Is is Spain or any other countries in Europe? Do, do you know? Is they are they recognizing that? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. Um, and so it's it is really interesting. But yeah, it's it's an interesting moment because I think I, I think it's a fine line, as I said, like you know, maintain that spirit of freedom in climbing. But once you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people doing it, there do need to be certain, you know, regulations in place to kind of like I mean one of the things that I think about um is just the safety aspect, you know. Uh, I think about um people trusting their lives to bolts that have been put, you know, fixed anchors that are in the wall, in wall that no one really knows when or with what material or who put those in there. And people just, people that come, especially from the gym or don't have that much experience, they just see a bolt. They blindly tr trust their, their life to it. Um, and I think uh, from my point of view, I feel like there needs to be some sort of like, um, record more record keeping on you know who is bolting what material are they using are they qualified do they know how to make you know because if you you could have a great bolt but if it's in a chossy piece of rock it's you know it could be super dangerous right and so i feel like there's a certain um level of you know rec skill requisite to be able to you know discern certain certain things like that um and then the upkeep of that material right and because you know, anchors wear out over time, need to be replaced, and who's keeping track of that. Um, I think it's a huge opportunity in a lot of ways because it could open up, you know, job opportunities for people to actually go out and bolt, right, and and do this stuff. And I think it's it's viable um, because I think there's it's in these areas' best interest to, you know, maintain these places um, in a safe way, Um but it's just kind of in this – it's in this moment where, you know, a lot of things are happening very quickly. So I think it's it's a fine line to, to – if you start going down that path to, to you, know, you know, really kind of regulate things, um, are we going to, you know, maybe lose some of that um, magic of why we started climbing in the first place? But if we don't, we might – lose access altogether right and so i think that's you know inevitable that we have to have some sort of you know um, protocols with some of that stuff yeah agreed yeah like you were mentioning earlier about boulder being really ahead of the game or advanced um you know i know the boulder climbing community the, the local climbing organization there they have like a major rebolting program and they have people like get certified they have like a whole program they go through make sure they get checked off on this this and this and then they can go out and, and rebolt and re you know, replace anchors and hardware and and such and yeah it's a pretty cool system seems pretty effective and um i help run the local climbing organization here in my community so we, we're trying to we're playing around with something like that to get people certified so they know what the hell they're yeah. doing when they when they go out and do that yeah that's yeah. that's awesome it's it's really cool to think about that i think um yeah, I think that's just kind of like that just does clash a little bit sometimes with, you know, going out and 
you know, spontaneously seeing something that you, you know, want to climb. And I think maybe that's just the point we're at where, you know, some of that stuff has to, has to change a little bit. And um, obviously there's, there's uh, a time and a place for everything, but I think roped climbing specifically, it's, you know, when, you know, as a root developer myself, I mean, I, I don't want someone to die on a route that I bolted. Right. And so you want to make sure you, you know, it's done right. And I think that's just a, it's a responsibility. Whereas I guess, you know, when you go bouldering, it's a little bit more in your own hands, right? You're taking that, that risk, you're, you're accepting that responsibility on yourself. Uh, but with, with fixed anchors specifically, I mean, it's something that, that needs to be, you know, taken into consideration because any, at this point, anybody can go out and bolt a route. And I think there is some talk about more people should be doing that selfless work of, of bolting new routes. But at the same time, I, I don't fully agree because, you know, it, sh- it shouldn't be just anybody. So it should be someone that's somehow certified that, you know, so that we can, you know, do this, do things properly because otherwise you could, you could really kind of mess things up and create like dangerous situations for other people. Right. 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 Of course. I was curious, like what kind of, when you go out to Catalonia or Sierra or Oleana, um, all these places, like what kind of land are you climbing on? Is this, is this privately owned? Is it like a small municipality that manages, manages it? Yeah, and that's that's a good question. I think sometimes you have you have um, part like park natural parks, so like yeah, like state or, or national parks. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have a lot of private land as well. Um, that, and I'm not exactly sure like how all the the um, the user rights on all of that stuff, like how that works. I think it's different. It's quite different than in the U.S. It's not like you're gonna go get sh- you're gonna get shot by someone, yeah. <laughs> like in some places <laughs> in the U.S., like you trespass. Or, it's right, a little bit right. different in that sense, but um, and, and and liability is a little bit different as well. So it's not quite the same issues, but um, from what I've seen, it's m- mostly come down to yeah these certain scenarios where there might be archaeological interests, there might be um, environmental concerns, there might be um, yeah, uh, what was it? archaeologists uh, hunt the hunters because the hunter user group is huge and they have this like massive lobbying lobbying power. So they'll, you know, basically you know close these massive massive swaths of land. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. There's if there's no one's really standing up for climbers, then uh, they you know will defer to those other groups. You know, one example, and I think not that not that climbing. It goes against the the principles of other environmental groups, but you know one of the common things is bird nesting, right? Uh, that we right. see in totally. all over all over the U.S. as well. Um, but in specific, I remember there's one situation in southern Spain where they were reintroducing these vultures into the wild, and they chose a established climbing area to do that on. And so they, so these scientists or uh, they basically 
put these vultures into the wall where there was already established roots. People have been climbing there for 20 years. And they're like, no, you can't climb here because there's birds here. And you're like, well, wait a minute, like nothing, you know, not to be disrespectful to these birds, but I mean, it's a, you know, it's not quite a fair, you know, situation for climbers either. Right. And so I think um, it just, you know, having someone that will stand up. I mean, that's something that inspires me a lot because I, I see, I spend a lot of time climbing around here and it's a place I, you know, love a lot. And I, do to um, do my best to you know take care of these places, and I see that they are in need of that, and so it's kind of a good timing to to have this this call because it's something that I've been thinking of for a while. So, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see how how things progress over here. Yeah, and like going up against the. Um the uh, avian community and this this vulture reintroduction i mean you guys are we're kind of powerless right there's no organized way to to not push back but just have a have a thoughtful and engaging conversation with them yeah, i think it's interesting from what i can see it's i mean climbing in spain whether that's on the rock or you know the the, the you know, the business of climbing, climbing gyms, whatever, it's probably about 20 years behind the U.S. Mm. And um, climbers, I think it is changing, but climbers are still very much like the societal rebels, um, like climbing, like climbers were maybe in the 80s and 90s and 70s, right, in the U.S. And it's not really mainstream. And so I think sometimes when you get into those situations, climbers will, I've seen friends of mine take, things into their own hands and make situations worse. Right. And mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. that's where it's like, yeah, having, you know, a bit of a more mature approach and, you know, kind of trying to take on maybe a little bit more of a structured, you know, regulatory you know, scenario would be, would be more appropriate, but um, climbing culture isn't quite there yet. And so it's like, you know, um, it's like, yeah, if, if climbers just, get angry and then make this, you know, do something to make the situation worse. That's only going to hurt climbers. Right. So, uh, yeah, in the long I think, run. Yep. I think it's, uh, great what the access fund is doing. I'm so, uh, so proud to see where it's at and so happy that, that American climbing has an organization like the access fund to really look out for, for climbers. I think it, it's, um, it's, it's very critical, especially as, as our sport grows so much, right? Right, of course. Yeah, it never ceases to blow me away when I see photos of, of Chris Winter, other Access Fund staff, and professional climbers like literally standing on the steps of Capitol Hill and engaging with, with lawmakers here. So we, we went yeah. from eating cans of cat food in, in Yosemite to, to Washington, D.C. Like, wow, that, that's it's it just never ceases to, yeah. to yeah, impress well, me. It's interesting. And I think it's very cool to see that. That recognition for climbing at that level um, and not to ridicule or any sense, but I think I guess. I guess a lot of that comes down to like climbers as a user group are 
a force to be reckoned with at this point. I mean, uh, I mean, what it, you tell me? What are the what are the stats? Like, how many climbers are there in the U.S. right now? Um, I mean, millions, several yeah. million, and the you know the Outdoor Industry Association. We keep boasting this huge number just for recreation in the country. It's like up to. Oh gosh, now you're putting me on the spot. But it's like hundreds of billions of dollars, like bigger than like oil and gas and and these other big industries like combined. I mean, wow. talk about a force wow. to be reckoned with. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, I think not to say that any of these politicians don't have a love for nature. I'm not saying that at all. But oftentimes it does come down to like, <laughs> you know, comes down to money, right? It's like, I mean, this climber has as a user group has a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there, which is a lot of, you know, um, a lot of voices. And so I think it's, it's great to see just that, that level of organize, organization kind of, you know, giving, giving climbing a structure and a backbone to kind of move through these next chapters, you know, in a responsible way. So I think uh, it is, it is really a, a great example to other you know, climbing communities around the world, uh, what the Access Fund is doing. Of course. Yeah. And it's just, it's becoming like globalized in a way. I mean, during COVID, you know, they host a, a big conference every year in the fall. And during COVID, we had to do it virtually. And it was like to get this international theme to it when we had folks from South America and Cuba and other international countries, international to the States at least. And, and, it's becoming like a global conversation. And while the Access Fund might be a, you know, a US-based organization, I mean, these conversations are going globally. And then you got organizations like the Global Climbing Initiative. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but I've had them on the show in the past. And this uh, lady, uh, Veronica Baker and her team are just crushing it, putting gear and shoes and into the hands of, of folks yeah, in, in underserved countries to get exposed to sport. I mean, it, it, the, this conversation is growing and I think it's only a matter of time where Spain and other countries, you know, similar can, can, I don't want to say catch up cause I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm on the high horse here. Like we're so far ahead, but you know, I guess for the lack of a better term, catch up to, you know, what we have going on here. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's definitely a lot to learn from, from the access fund. I think, um, I mean, there are interestingly other elements, and, and I'm I'm a little bit ignorant for some, for, you know, on my side of like some of the benefits that you know Access Fund or American Alpine Club provide. But you know, it is interesting on other levels. You know, some of the way that things work over here. I think there's there are things to learn as well. You know, one hundred percent. The one of the interesting things about being if you are a member of the Spanish climbing federation, then you are, you know, you're basically, you're insured. Right. And, um, there's all sorts of things like that where, uh, I think there's other discussions to be had, right. Like, you know, just the, the liability and, you know, when, when accidents happen and, you know, how, uh, how people are taken care of. Right. I think there's, there's, um, there's a lot to it, I guess, but yeah. But yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's can be easy to take for granted um, those those resources we might have here and 
trail days and crag cleanups are such common language. Like, oh, we're hosting this day. Everyone can come out and clean up the crag or build this new trail. Are there any opportunities, organized opportunities like that in Spain? There are. You know, we just had the Ciurana Climbing Festival here. And I think it's kind of a great initiative that is kind of the beginning of, of more things like that. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the, the interesting challenges I can see is that, like, once things do become commercialized or become, you know, formalized, because I think there's a big gray area right now of how people access um, climbing areas over here. And then when when things become official and there's like, you know, these initiatives behind it, then suddenly, you know, people start maybe wanting to charge money to go, you know, to start using these places. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that's a double-edged sword, right? That, you know, it's like, I mean, I think that that is potentially part of the, you know, equation in certain scenarios. But I think, you know, how to keep these places open and free while also protected. And um, I mean, one of the, the classic examples that I trip out on sometimes, you know, these distinctions that we have, like you have, um, when something becomes a national park, I mean, it really puts a place on the map. And of course, that um, that certification is for is it, it is a, a way of protecting it, right? That place. But then you're also bringing huge amount of attention to that place. And I think you know it's interesting if you look, you know, the difference between national park and national forest. You know, you go to Yosemite versus you know um, Inyo National Forest, and there's a lot more people uh, in in Yosemite Park than you know, in your national forest. Right. And it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's just an interesting, you know, paradox or, or whatever it is, but I think, uh, you know, we just got to keep, I think, uh, on a, on a grassroots level, you know, and as, as someone that, you know, is introducing climbing, new cl- introducing climbing to new people through, through these gyms, it's like, there is a responsibility just as, climbers to educate each other and, and help guide each other and um, and even sometimes pick up after each other right um, I think there's a, you know that that really does still fall on on climbers to to look after ourselves and I think that that we shouldn't um, get rid of that 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 should still be an important part of you know how we you know how we are as climbers. Take, taking responsibility for our own actions and, and yeah, an, an element or a level of self-policing. And I think that's lends itself well or speaks well to you know, your value of freedom and being able to kind of go out and, and climb and, and take care of things ourselves without too much regulation or putting things in a box per se. It's just like a nice balance in there between having to put some parameters around things and then also being able to take care of it ourselves. I think yeah, that's the absolutely. balance we're always trying to strike here. And there's pros and cons, ups and downs, yeah. ups and downs to both sides for sure. Are there, uh, are there you know, there's so many... I don't want to say so many, but there's issues, there's challenges, there's matters that we're talking about all the time 
in the in the climbing community. Are there any that jump out to you the most that might be most passionate to you? Is it you know is there something that's environmentally based or socially based or anything any category that you might find yourself you know more most passionate about? Because it's hard to you know be passionate about and advocate for everything. You kind of gravitate towards one yeah. or two things and really hone in on that. Anything you're really sexy up in here? Um. I mean, as I mentioned to you earlier, just the just the stewardship of you know crag uh, root development. I feel like that's something that that really deserves you know a little bit more thought and consideration. How we approach that stuff, um, you know, it might maybe I might offend some people uh, with this, and I don't intend to. But um, you know, I oftentimes climb in Siurana and. Um, I don't know. It 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 can be overboard the amount of dogs that are at the crag, and I feel it's like a huge topic. Yeah, you know, I think it's like that's it's an interesting thing. You're like, obviously, it's clear we shouldn't have uh, bring your boombox and blast music. You know that that's not that's not cool to your other fellow climbers. But like, is bringing you know your dogs to the you know I don't know. I think that's something that I I. Uh, I'd see so many people bring their dogs to the crick, to the cliff. There's always dog poop on the trail. The um, dogs, you know, it, it just seems like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand why, why the people bring their dogs there just to like leave them alone. Um, yeah. It's, but, it's a, it's a touchy one for sure. I know that. I know that that might uh, set some people off and no, no offense, but, if you're in Sierra, it it makes sense because there's just not really much space at the base of the roots of the crag. And um, but anyways, I think yeah, just certain stuff like that in general. It's like yeah, what what are some of those? You know, I think there's a lot of common sense things that that people do need to to work on and that we need to educate people on. You know, whether that's you know you know at our gyms now we we have this initiative to take people out rock climbing. Um, which is really cool opportunity to kind of, you know, kind of like help them in the, that next step from indoor climbing into the outdoors. And that gives us this opportunity to kind of educate them in that process, which is super exciting. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, and, and really that's how, you know, it's always been, you know, whether it's like someone takes you under their wing and kind of guides you through that process. Um, obviously there's, you know, situations where that doesn't really happen very, very well. So we, we need to, we need to do better as a, as a, you know, community as a user group in general. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mentorship, I think has pivoted a little bit from the older guy. It's been climbing for, you know, decades. I'll take you under your wing. And now you have these indoor facilities where you can get broken in a little bit uh, into the sport, but yeah, translating that to outside. I think that's where gyms have a nice role uh, to fill, to bridge yeah. that knowledge gap. Yeah, and I've yeah. had other gym owners on the show uh, before and they, they say the same thing. You know, they have those gym to crag programs and just uh, bridge the knowledge gap for those, those folks who are interested from going indoors yeah. to out. So, yeah. Being in the, the same orbit as Tommy and Alex and, and stuff and Alex Honnold, uh, they're both doing great environmental work. Like 
do their does their work influence you at all or give you a different perspective or engagement on these things um any other athletes out there that that get you fired up on this stuff um yeah i mean i'm i'm super inspired and and you know proud of what those guys and how they're doing you know doing things um i think uh i'm absolutely uh i mean it's really interesting to see tommy advocating for queen creek right now you know in particular you know we kind of went through that a long time ago it feels like you know must have been over 10 years ago when they were gonna mine it and then we we you know i remember working with the access fund to to kind of you know speak out on climbers behalf and unfortunately it's uh it sucks to see them you know going through that situation again um another uh topic that is kind of close to my heart, you know, is the, the whole scenario in little Cottonwood Canyon in Salt Lake with mm, the, mm-hmm. the gondola that's going to be, you know, scheduled to be put in. Um, yep. and so it's, I mean, I'm very proud of those guys and, you know, how they're, you know, um, such great ambassadors for our sport in that way on, on, on the level that they're doing, you know, going to, you know, um, Washington DC and, and, and all, all the work they're doing. Um, you know, I guess my approach, I feel like I'm, I guess my approach is a little bit different. You know, I feel like I'm, um, it's more about just, you know, um, trying to follow those values personally, but then, you know, be an example to those people around me. Um, uh, I think, uh, so it's, I think it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's super inspired to see what Tommy and Alex are doing. Yeah. I had Tommy on, uh, I don't know, gosh, feels like I think three years ago or, or something. And yeah, just continuous inspiration outside of the climbing, uh, just his actual climbing accomplishments and his representation on, on a lot of issues and things, climate change, social matters and stuff. And yeah, the Oak Flat, uh, what he's involved with right now. So it's good stuff. And well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, Chris. We could put a bow on this here. And I just got like one more thing I want to throw your way. I've had, I've had other folks on the show who are also parents and they all say that the phrase, like the quote, dot, 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 for the next generation in relation to leaving things in good shape or better for the next generation really hits home after they have kids. Does, do you, are you in the same camp with that statement? Do you agree now that you have uh, kids of your own? Are, are they climbers? Do they like to climb? And- my, kids, my, clients, my kids climb a little bit. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's something that, that, uh, becoming a parent, it changes your perspective in that way. Um, and I, I don't know if my kids are going to, you know, grow up to be like passionate climbers in the same way that I am, but I think just in general, um, it is something that I think about, you know, I think thinking about climate change and what, what's the world that they're inheriting is going to be like in 20 years. Right. It's, it's kind of terrifying to think, think about some of that stuff. So, Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think one just, you know, as a parent trying to instill like an appreciation for nature and, you know, like once you have an appreciation for nature, I think it's pretty natural to want to take care of those places. Right. 
And so that's that feels like the, the first step. Um, and and yeah, I think um, just in general, yeah, yeah, preserving these places so that they are um, so that they're still around and they're they're well preserved, but that we can actually enjoy them at all, right? Because you know, as we've seen many times, places get shut down, and it is very tragic that you know um, that the new generation will never get to climb in those places right and so i think it just uh yeah leaving it better um than, than we found it absolutely um and then you know just i think in trying to continue to inspire people about you know about these places and and get to keep them keep them excited and then I, like i said if you appreciate those places then you naturally want to take care of them. And so that, that feels like the first step. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can, that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org. So check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, Jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way. And I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.